Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, the kickoff, the second show of our 11th season, we have back in our studio, Mr. Leo Bateri, who is the author of What Anyone Can Do. Leo, welcome to the program. Ah, so glad. Uh, it's just so great to be back on the show. I appreciate it. You know, this is a first of many because we are recording this out of my basement studio <laughs> and we're doing video as well. But before we jump into your new book, which is a phenomenal read, What Anyone Can Do, can you share with our audience a little bit about your education background and what you've been up to? Well, um, the education background is, is an easy one um, because I um, did my graduate work at Seton Hall University. I have my Seton Hall University shirt right there. Go the Pirates. Part of the um, uh, College of Communication and the Arts. Uh, I was a Master of Arts in Strategic Communication Leadership. My time at Seton Hall was phenomenal, uh, not only as a student, but taught there for a number of years. Uh, and my background is largely corporate communications, as you well know. Um, and but what was interesting was com when I think about my time at Seton Hall and the great work that the instructors did with the students in realizing how much intellectual capital was there among the students and how well they did at getting us to learn uh, from one another. Shortly thereafter, I ended up taking a position at Vistage where I was running corporate communications for them. But in large part, you know, I got to learn so much because that company basically assembles and facilitates peer groups for CEOs, small business owners, business leaders. And the same dynamic I saw at work among students at Seton Hall, I watched CEOs do it with one another in a way that was really remarkable and how they helped one another learn and grow and, and um, you know, take their businesses beyond uh, where they ever thought they could. So in many respects, those experiences really contributed to my co-authoring a book with Leon Shapiro back in 2016 called The Power of Peers. And that book is essentially is a study of how and why formal peer groups for business leaders work so well. And we gave it some language um, and I think provided a narrative that I think, you know, just explained how and why, again, these groups are so effective and so powerful for CEOs. After that book, though, um, so the year after, I was doing a lot of speaking and uh, had a podcast um, that Randy Cantrell helped me put together called The Year of the Peer. He co-hosts my new podcast now, or our new podcast now. But uh, during The Year of the Peer, I had 50 like incredibly successful people from all walks of life. And every one of them, as you might imagine, when I asked them, hey, um, did you you know, get to where you are today all by yourself. And of course, <laughs> they would laugh at the notion, right? Um, you know, we all have a lot of people that help us along the way. Yeah, your conversation expanded from our peers, kind of like people like me, to a circle of people around us, our, our family, our, you know, parents, kids, teachers, uh, mentors, mentees this whole circle of people that um, makes such a profound difference uh, in our lives. And also to take it out of strictly the formal peer group setting. We talk about formal peer groups in this book, but we also, you know, my focus really this time around was to bring it into our everyday lives. You know, how can we do a better job of enlisting and engaging others so that we can be our best self? And that's essentially, as you know, what this book is all about. This is, this is really great because I think during our conversation yesterday, you talked about how, you know, no one goes it alone. 
in which you learned from the, uh, the power of peers was that, you know, leaders, they're there to lead, but you have to lead someone. You have to lead people and you just can't pull the cart by yourself. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think it's a really good time to kind of, you know, you mentioned leadership and I know, you know, it's, it's such a focus of yours. And as you all know, leadership isn't just about being in charge of an organization or, or a company or a university or something like that. Um, we can be leaders in our families. We can be leaders among our friends, in our communities. Um, and I think when we talk about what anyone can do, it's, how can we do a good job in terms of being our best self, engaging others to do that, but also leading others and helping others uh, do the same. And I think when we start thinking about leadership, kind of like Drew Dudley talked about it, Drew Dudley did a wonderful TED talk, if anyone wants to see it, and it's called Lollipop Leadership, essentially. Um, and it's about, you know, six minutes long. And he really talks about how we have made leadership into such a big um, almost unattainable, you know, type of um, connotation we've given to that word that we don't really recognize the power we can have, um, you know, with others. And so part of what this book does also is says, look, kind of like the airline safety instructions, you know, when they tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you attempt to help others. So <laughs> in many respects, this book is about how do I be my best self so that not only do I realize my own potential, but that I can make a positive difference in other people's lives. And I'm sure you use a lot of sports analogies in, in your lectures in regards to, you know, especially for a football team where you have uh, uh, 11 players on, on the field for each offense and defense trying to figure out how to manage each play. Um, what are your thoughts in regards to how do you, as a leader, how do you get one who is not uh, performing up to what you know their capabilities are? But it's very important because, as they say, you know, you're only, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Yeah, that's a great question. And what I've seen when we look at um, teams of all kinds, whether it's in sports or in business, is that it's not just the leader's job to do that. In fact, at least in, this, in the specific way that you mentioned, it, in many respects, it's about creating a culture where people accept personal responsibility and take pride for what they do and realize that their currency with everyone in that organization or team is based on their ability and willingness to come to practice every day, to, to do everything in a way that brings their A game all the time. So I think when you create that kind of culture, it helps um, people not slip back in that way. So may not always be the coach that is trying to say or the or the leader of a team to say hey i think you know you're underperforming uh, in many respects um, the fellow players will do that before you ever have to if you're the leader that's created that kind of culture and i think that's what's really powerful you look at teams you know much to maybe the chagrin of um, some of our seton hall folks i do talk quite a bit about the university of connecticut women's basketball team actually and i think it's hard to pick a program that has been more dominant over the last 20 years than they have been. And when we studied that program, we first studied them actually as, as the power of peers and we continue to talk about them uh, you know, in this book as well. They have an incredible culture of accountability among the players. Those players come there because they believe that's where they can go and realize their potential. That's where they know they set a standard of excellence that isn't about who they're playing on any given night. Um, it's really about how do we set a standard of excellence that's so high and how do we 
bring the effort each and every day. And when you do those things, that's what wins you national championships. And, um, you know, just about year in and year out, I mean, I've gone to the last, I think, 12 consecutive Final Fours. You know, it's a little yes. bit <laughs> pretty remarkable. You know? I had the opportunity of seeing them play against Seton Hall when my daughter was in high school four years ago. And unfortunately, it was really watching, like watching a pro team play a high school team. They were, I mean, the coach is a phenomenal coach. I had an opportunity of hearing him speak once at the University of Connecticut for a, a, dun, a dinner I was at Elsevier at the time and we had sponsored, you know, a table or two and to hear his thoughts about the mission that he has for these young people to come in their, their plan. And he says, Hey, here's, here's how we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to win. And if this feels good for you, then come on. But if you don't want to do this plan, you know, it's not the right school for you. So he recruits well. He really does. And I think creating that culture, um, of really being it's about being a great teammate uh one of the things that um he talks about in terms of recruiting high school players is he'll watch a high school player and you know in most cases of course the high school player is going to go on the bench at least for a minute or two to get a breather and then get back out in the game right one of the most important things he's looking for is what happens when that player goes on the bench. They sit there, throw a towel over their head and just be ready to get back in the game. Or do they stay engaged, you know, uh, encourage their teammates, do the kinds of things that, that yes. keep them involved and leading still right from that bench. They don't even have to be out on the floor. That's the player that gets to come to UConn. It isn't about, you now clearly you have to be talented and competitive and, you know, all of those kinds of things. I mean, I think those are, um, you know, kind of um, basics in terms of what you need to do. You've got to be a good enough player. But to play on that team, uh, you won't get to play on that team unless you are the kind of kid who is a good teammate. Absolutely. Uh, fascinating book. I mean, really, congratulations. Very well done. And I'm going to put this on my Darrell Gunter best, uh, best reading books for, for business people. I have a lot of the clients Thank who can really benefit from your principles here. Can you walk us through... Um, your book. I mean, you, you have quite a few chapters here and some very nice t titles to the chapters, and they really have some very good, very good detail. So in chapter one, you talk about no one does it alone. Why should I? Do you find that a lot of leaders think that they can do it alone? Um, I think a lot of times when um, you see people get to a certain leadership position, many of them have at least figured out at some point <laughs> that they've needed a lot of people along the way. I think the issue uh, with people sometimes when they get to a CEO position isn't that they don't want to talk to people, it's they're not sure who they should talk to about what. So oftentimes when you've got a CEO who may um, be conflicted about something or may not have you know, the answer in their minds, sometimes you know, talking to other people in your organization who either come at it from a certain perspective or come at it with a vested interest are not always the people that are going to give you the kind of advice that will help you make a decision for an entire organization or even your board of directors or even people that, you know, you need to show up a little differently to. So for those CEOs to actually have a resource where they can sit down with other people and know exactly what it's like to make decisions for an entire organization like that and get all those perspectives, it can be very powerful. I think for many of us, though, we grew up 
you know, in school where we were graded, you know, as individuals, we go to work, we are compensated and evaluated as individuals. And we live in a world where we're putting our best face forward. We've got to show up, you know, like we got it all together and everybody's talk to someone and say, Hey, how's it going today? Today's great. <laughs> right. It's like, no one has any stuff going on. No one has any challenges or whatever. <laughs> we don't always have a place um, to, to deliver you know, that message in many respects and really an outlet to talk about those kinds of things. So part of what the book is, in fact, I should um, probably briefly explain the title. What anyone can do actually comes from the, uh, a line in a book that was written in 1976 uh, by Joe Henderson, who was um, a former editor and writer for Runner's World for about, you know, 30 years or so. And in that book, and he's written like a couple of dozen books, um, but in that book, he was talking about success, not only success in running, but just kind of success uh, in general. And basically said that, you know, for a lot of people, they're successful not because they're capable of superhuman feats. He said they're successful because they do the things that anyone can do that most of us never will. And it's really kind of a remarkable insight. And I, I thought about that in terms of the fact that if you look at a University of Scranton study, it says 92% of people... Uh, fail at the New Year's resolutions. Now, when you consider the fact that, you know, let's say I'm making the resolution, something that I off, and that's realistic, right? I'm not trying to make the Olympics in six months or something like that. I'm going to lose five pounds or whatever, or do whatever it is. Right, right. It's left to our kind of get off to a good start, and then we kind of, you know, kind of, we come up with some of a rationale we can to say, yeah, no, I didn't have time for that. I didn't really want to do it anyway or whatever it was. So the idea of what anyone can do is I think anyone can surround themselves with really good people who can encourage them or give them advice about how they can help achieve their goal more easily or whatever that may look like. And when you surround yourself with the right people, they will help you do the things anyone can do far more often. So this book, when you start getting into the chapters, just talks about, you know, how, how do I know, first of all, what it is I want to do? What does that look like? You know, we, we're, we don't grow up necessarily in a world where people uh, feel always open to say, hey, I want to change the world, or I want to do this, or I want to make a difference in, in this area, because it somehow seems so audacious, you know. Um, so I, I think in many respects, just trying to get to a place where what do I want to do? How do I surround myself with the people who can help me do that? And then what does that process look like? And actually in the book, we develop a people plan, as you know, which isn't a prescription because I don't really like giving people prescribing something to people that's so specific, but it does give everyone a framework for how they may be able to identify something that they want to do and actually make it possible for them. And also by doing so, uh, begin, uh, I think, a process with, where as other people help them, they can help others as well. Beautiful. And when you talk about in chapter two, the power of exploring, discovering, expressing what you want, can you, can you shed some insight on why this is so important towards your personal growth? Well, if you think about it, um, well, well, first of all, a lot of that comes from, there's a woman who wrote a book uh, and also has a great video called Seeing Red Cars. Her name is Laura Goodrich. And she basically says, you know, we, we kind of get more of what focus on. Uh, the, the problem is that, as she would say it, when you ask someone, hey, what is it you want? Oftentimes the response will be, well, what I don't want is blah, blah, blah. But they don't, <laughs> they don't talk about what they do want. I think I'm 
unless you know what you do want, it's difficult to know who are the people that I should surround myself with to help me get there. So if I were interested in running a marathon, that's going to be a different set of people than if I were interested in learning a language, for example, right? So when we think about the value and importance of just some reflection and maybe just finding one or two people who we're close to who we can have this kind of a conversation with and really try to nail down what are my aspirations, what are my dreams, and then from there, being able to identify some specific digestible goals that, and then, you know, kind of take the process from there. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Leo Batari, the author of What Anyone Can Do. I highly recommend it. And it would be good for you to get his first book, The Power of Peers, as a, uh, the foundation as he's building on his research. So, uh, Leo, when you talk about the building your dream team and keeping the squares out of your circle, um, you're not talking about the people who can't square dance or anything like that, but um, explain that to our audience. So actually, uh, the, the line uh, came from Raphael Gordon, who actually is from New Jersey. Uh, and Raphael Gordon is a, a speaker, uh, inspires audiences around the world, just a wonderful guy. He basically talked in terms of the fact that we need to take stock of the people who are surrounding us. And the idea of keeping squares out of your circle is if you have naysayers in your circle, if you have people who are not really encouraging or trying to lift you up. They're either holding you back or dragging you down or whatever. This is something to really think about in terms of how much time do I want to invest in those kinds of relationships that I know are not helpful to me or quite frankly, helpful to anyone. So um, he says, in order to health, keep a healthy circle, you got to keep the squares out of it. And his, his squares are those, are those naysayers, those people who aren't making a positive contribution to who we want to be in our lives. You know, um, very interesting. Chapter four talks about the yin and yang of expectations and goals. And it, it, it really made me to reflect on sometimes when we set these outlandish goals and we get all excited. And then a day later, um, we've moved on, but we're kind of depressed that we haven't realized that goal. Um, talk to us about the yin and yang of expectations of your goals. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, one of the stories that I tell in the book that I think is a, a good metaphor for it is um, the day that um, took my daughters up to climb a mountain. And so it's a good three plus hour climb uh, to get up there. And it's not easy. It's 12,800 feet. And everyone wants to be at the top of the mountain. Getting there is a whole different ball. Okay, so we talked about preparation and whatever and they were ready and they did their thing but about we get about halfway into it and they start saying You know <laughs> And you know, they were getting tired and they were kind of feeling like all right We've had enough of this experience and, and but the thing was they kept looking at that peak and they would climb for 10 minutes They'd climb for another 10 minutes and every look looked like it wasn't getting any closer. Right. So as you can imagine, this climb now starts to not only be physically exhausting, but it's emotionally debilitating. So what ended up happening was I said to them finally, because they were ready to quit. And I said, tell you what, let's climb for like 10 or 15 more minutes. I said, but let's look at where we are. Let's take stock of where we are. And there was this large bush there or whatever. So anyway, we climbed to 10 or 15 minutes and they're looking at me like, all right, time's up. You know, they're ready to head back down the mountain. And I said, and they looked at the peak and they say, see, doesn't look any closer than it did 10 or 15 minutes ago. And I said, look behind you. And they look and that little, that bush, that what 
was once a large bush looked like a little dot on the landscape. They couldn't believe the progress they made. So with that, once they started celebrating those small wins and thinking in terms of their progress and not constantly focusing on that, on that goal, they went right up to the top of the mountain. Now, that has been helpful for them ever since. Anytime they have a goal and they realize, hey, this is, this is difficult or this is going to take me a while or whatever, they understand how to celebrate small wins along the way and how to keep themselves you know, inspired as they go through that journey because they know that that view from the top is worth it. There's nothing like it. And because of that, um, I think it changes the way they go about uh, achieving goals uh, of any kind, uh, even today. That is awesome. That is awesome. And did you have hopefully have a picnic at the top of the mountain uh, to celebrate. <laughs> you know, you'd like to think that um, we were carrying that much stuff with us. We didn't do a picnic, but we took some good photos and uh, it was a lot of fun and they were just enjoying the view. Believe me. You know, um, your, your next chapter, you talk about uh, we learn better when we learn together and it's nothing more enjoyable um, when you're in a group of people and you're brainstorming and people are building off of each other's ideas. Um, let's just talk about your experience in this area and, and what you have witnessed and what are the best practices in folks doing that and learning together? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I had Linda Darling Hammond on my uh, podcast during this year, the peer podcast uh, back in 2017, probably one of the top education experts in the world from Stanford. And she basically um, talked a lot about the fact that the more teachers, for example, collaborate, the more they're able to build collaborative environments among students and get them to be sharing. And, and where the, the teacher kind of goes into the background a little more and allows the students to, to learn from one another. And I think whenever you can create an environment where you have students learning from one another and then learning from the material and also a professor who can add their insights or any teacher uh, into that conversation, that's a very powerful triad uh, that you're, you're building there and it's um you know it's a very um you know it's incredible I, I told her that you know collaborative learning when i went to school was called cheating you know i mean you didn't uh <laughs> you weren't collaborating with other students that you were by yourself you were working on whatever and being tested or quizzed or whatever that looked like and you know it was just um completely um different than today, where students, I think, are having many more opportunities to learn together and learn from one another, and that's provided really just better preparation for what they're going to have to do in the workplace, which is we work as part of a team. We need to understand how to do that. We need to learn how to do it from a young age. Absolutely, absolutely. And then when you talk about asking uh, questions and listening for understanding, um, it, it's a shame. I don't think in our school systems from uh, K through 12 or even uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate where they actually have a course on how to ask questions. What are your thoughts in regards to how do you ask the better questions and to do better listening? I think you enter into mode where you're learning, not judging. I think is probably one of the biggest things of all. Oftentimes, when we're in conversations with people and they start giving opinions or perspectives that may be different from ours, we move into a mode of judgment and evaluation as opposed to listening and really understanding where that person is coming from. And when we get into that mode of understanding and learning, it will inspire us to ask questions that help us understand better kind of where they're coming from. Um, you know, one of the things that I brought up in the book that um, – 
you know, um, had some interesting conversations with people about is that, you know, our parents, when we growing up, most of us got the advice that, hey, whatever you do, when you're in conversations with people or whatever, don't talk about religion and politics. You know, it only gets you in trouble. It's only just going to be cause for a fight. Um, the unfortunate part of that advice, though, is that so rather than learn from people about why their political affiliation is what it is or what the role of faith may be in their life and what that looks like for them, we avoid those conversations and we don't learn from one another. And imagine how the world might be a bit different if we could actually have conversations about those things, understand where people are coming from, not always agreeing, not always, you know, but at least you know what you are not agreeing with <laughs> because you have a more thorough understanding. And oftentimes it can be something where it can, um, you know, help embolden our own views or it can give us a different perspective where we become open to other ideas. So I think um, when we listen for understanding, we're going to ask good questions. You know, I, I think that that is probably one of the most key skills that John Hoffman and I, we teach at Seton Hall, uh, professional selling, that we, we, we always remind our students to ask more questions and to listen better. But I think you've hit it right on the head when you talk about how we're prejudging uh, something and wanting to get our point across. So Yeah, we're working out the response in our minds while the other person is talking. We're not really paying attention oftentimes. And, and, and if we can catch ourselves uh, doing that, that can be uh, really helpful. When you talk about communication is the power of safe haven, um, share with our audience uh, some of the key principles of that because communication is very key. And uh, people tell me I'm an excellent communicator. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I think I'm probably on a scale of one to 10. I think I'm probably about a four. I think there's so much uh, more I can do, so much better I can do because as you said, sometimes I'm, 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 I'm prejudging um, what the person is saying and, but that's, a, that's really affecting the communication. So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, first of all, I guess communication is more than just words, uh, number one. Secondly, um, I brought up a lot of the, this notion of safe haven because I think it was such a valuable piece to bring forward from the power of peers. Because when you look at formal peer groups, one of the things that makes those peer groups work so well is that it's a very respectful, safe environment to talk. You know, you are among people who are there to learn and not to judge. And you don't have to fear that level of judgment in the room. It's also a place where what happens in that room, what's talked about in that room stays in that room. So that uh, culture of confidentiality that uh, exists there is very uh, liberating for people. So to be able to go and really be able to, again, not put your best face forward, but to say, here's what's really going on. Here's what's really bothering me. Here's what I'm really struggling with. And when you do that with a group of people, you're going to find, A, that you're not alone because half the people are either struggling with the same thing or have struggled with it and can be really helpful. And, and there's a level of empathy, I think, that's you know, extremely powerful. Um, so when you have that place where uh, it's a learning, you know, non-judgmental atmosphere and where you can have those conversations and know that when you're having that conversation with whether that's one person, two people, or 10 people, that that's where that conversation is staying. And I think it allows us to be more open. Um, and, you know, um, there's just, uh, I think, 
as you know, uh, Scott Mordell, who's the CEO of YPO, uh, we talked a lot about Safe Haven at YPO. He said, you know, forum groups, it's not about people telling other people what they should be doing. He said, we don't should people. <laughs> we don't try to give much is we want to share experiences so that people can come to their own conclusions about what's best for themselves. And when you have an environment like that, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's just really, really powerful. Absolutely. Leo, believe it or not, we're almost at the end of the interview, but I wanted to make sure that we did a few things. Number one, how can someone get in touch with you if they wanted you to speak at their event if they wanted you to do some consulting for them, how can they get in touch with Mr. Leo Batari? Sure, they can go to leobatari.com, L-E-O-B-O-T-T-A-R-Y.com. Uh, you, can, um, you can also find uh, the book, actually both books at whatanyonecando.com uh, uh, and also Amazon and any other, I think, reputable bookstore. Um, the book is out now, just out uh, very recently. And um, yeah, would love um, to hear from you. And whether that's me coming to speak or, or just if you have any comments or feedback or questions, anything you like, um, I hope your listeners wouldn't hesitate for a moment to reach out. Absolutely. And I just want to remind our listeners that if you missed any part of this broadcast, it will be up on iTunes U under Seton Hall Podcast. Look for Leadership with Darrell W. Gunter. And this probably will be show number 216 or 217, something like that. Um, Leo, if you could um, take the next minute and close out our show with some of the key things you like for your readers uh, who read your book, the people reading your book to come away with. Well, I'm not sure that I even need a whole minute, and I'm not sure that I even want to share words that are my own here, because one of the people who uh, was, a, you'll see him quoted quite a bit, as you know, uh, in the book, his name is Sekou Andrews, and he's a poetic voice, and he's just a, a brilliant man, not only because I think of his words, but the real depth and, and meaning behind those words. It's more than just a turn of phrase. And the book opens with a quote from him, and I'll close our conversation with it. He said, there is an incredible power that comes from surrounding yourself with communities in which you feel small among them, and they look at you like a giant. So wow. that is powerful. So there we go. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, again, uh, a very wise uh, session that we've had with Mr. Leo Pateri, who is the author of What Anyone Can Do, and he is a fellow Seton Hall pirate, which I'm very proud of. Leo, thank you for coming on the program. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Darrell. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for this week with Leadership with Darrell Gunter on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming globally around the world at WSOU.net. Have a great weekend, but most importantly, remember, leadership begins with you.